Dr. George Ellis is a South African theoretical physicist who is considered to be a world leader in relativity theory and cosmology. He has published over 500 scientific papers and several books, including the Large Scale Structure of Spacetime, which he co-authored with Stephen Hawking in 1973. He is an active Quaker and won the Templeton Prize in 2004 for his exceptional contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimension. He is also a past president of the International Society for Science and Religion. George Ellis, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. No, thank you. And your contributions to cosmology and our imagining of the world. So I'd just like to know what is your metaphysical view of the nature of the universe? Metaphysical view, basically a physical aspect that has. And I have to be very careful when I say that. The physical aspect, sun, the stuff you can touch, it has non-physical aspects such as thoughts. Algorithms, mathematics, and so on. And so, what happens in the world is affected by physics, but it's also affected by abstract elements and perhaps present climate. The prime example is algorithms. Algorithms are changing what happens across the world in a very important way in many, many areas of life. And that's an example. Algorithms is an abstract thing, but it causes physical changes in the world. Yeah, it's very interesting, and just as even a tangent, the way technology is influencing the way we think. I can't speak to any detail, but I feel a difference in my brain since I've been dependent on technology. And as you say, we're working with algorithms, and algorithms and certain softwares are observing our behavior. I feel like it changes the chemistry of my brain in some way. Well, let me step back there. Everything you do changes the chemistry of your brain, yeah. or more precisely. Everything you do, the strengths of synapses in your brain. So it's not specific to technology. It happens if you if you learn something, go to a concert, and so on. So that's a much more general statement. Yes, I don't mean to just single that out. It just seems with the exponential nature of technology, you see a difference because you say when you started out. Now, if I may say, I think I think you're eighty now, and so you will observe. Like I was reading about when the book you collaborated on with Stephen Hawking and how that was a process of the that for those who don't know the large scale structure of space time, where that was a process was manual. Going back over proofs and having to do that, and just the way technology has, has changed, even the conception of the way we receive. Yeah, I've been able to make enormous differences. I had to type that um, manuscript on a typewriter. You had to fill in equations by hand, and then you had to send it off to the printers. You get proofs back now. In those days, you would have to then have the proof and the manuscript side by side and compare them word by word. You see, they were the same. You'd mark corrections. You'd send it back to the printer. You'd get another set of proofs back. All of that now, you do it with a word processor. You check it by, and you send it off, and it gets printed. It's incredibly much easier, and you can do spell check, grammar checks, that kind of stuff. So, life, those kind of things have become enormously easier. I wouldn't know this firsthand, but I understand from the ease of writing and from the grammatical level. But in terms of the speed of which you're able to publish something and get it out there, I mean, you're always questioning theories and you're testing them and making observations. But it seems like things seem more certain. Things seem more polished. Modeling is more streamlined, say. 
Well, I think a word processor enables one to write letter papers easily. In the old days, you had to either retype the whole thing or you used to get out scissors and cut pieces of paper, paste them aside, which is a ridiculous process. Mm-hmm. And quite often when I'm typing something, I know roughly what I want to say and you know the line of argument, but when you're halfway through it, you suddenly recognize that one section would be much better in a different place than it is. Well, you can just uh, cut it and paste it now on the word process. In the old days, it was a, it was a major issue. And, and so part of the process of thinking is writing your ideas down. They become fairer as you write them. And partly the, the order in which you present them makes a big difference. And that order quite often only becomes fair as you actually write it down on the word processes. So in that sense, I think it's not just speeded it up, but it's made it possible to have much better outcomes. And I want to go back to something else you were saying so that perhaps we could expand on it because the extent to which everything is that we're exposed to in our environment does change the chemistry of our brains. Our thoughts can have physical outcomes. They can have a physical influence in the world. And that may be, in a way, you differ from some of your colleagues who perhaps see or on the record is seeing things mostly through the prism of, of physics and science and everything can be explained through that. Yeah, well, I've spent a lot of time writing about the limits of science in general and the limits of physics in particular. And what you're alluding to is the whole issue of emergence and complexity. And in fact, I've written a big book called Top Down, How Can Physics Underlie the Mind? Top Down Causation in the Human Context. I've just had a paper put on the archive criticizing that book and saying that I've got it all wrong. Physics can explain everything. Mm-hmm. And what one has to understand, firstly, is that physicists themselves, I would say, split into two major schools. There are the group who, roughly speaking, one would call particle physicists, and they are very strong on this sort of map stuff, what they call effective field theory, stuff like that. And they think that everything can be done in a bottom-up way. Then there's a great many physicists who work in condensed matter physics or solid-state physics, and they've got actually a very, very different view of the way things work, and they are very much in line with the way I think they see top-down causation taking place, where it's not just that the lower levels influence the higher, but also the higher levels influence the lower, and levels have causal power in their own right. So, for instance, if... I can make a plan for a house which takes place at the mental level and then I can put it on a computer aided design so I can send those plans to building arises which is what I plan. Well it's done causation for my mind into physical things existing out in the world. Now there's no way that physics can explain that. But in solid state physics there are various aspects of solid state physics which cannot be explained in the all the emergent way that the particle physicists would like. And there's a wonderful branch of physics at the moment, topological conductors, topological insulators, explain in a bottom-up way because they involve non-local states, topological states. A similar example, actually, which is a very interesting homely one, is knitting. When you knit, you take a one-dimensional strength and you turn it into a two-dimensional thing, and you then lift that up into a three-dimensional you are creating topological structures which cannot be explained in terms of lower-level variables. So that's an example from that side. Biology is full of examples of stop-down causation, collaborating stuff. 
I could carry on about that if you want. Oh, yes, I'd love to. I can also recommend strongly reading a public Dennis novel called The Music of Life and another one called Dance at Finnevar. And so he has constructed a multi-level computer simulation of a heart. And the heart's a very complicated thing. But what happens is the heart has mobiles, uh, patterns of, of pulsations, which are taking place at the macroscopic level. They can't be described at the microscopic level because they're macroscopic. Change pressure at what the individual cells are doing. In fact, there's pacemakers in the heart which work by changing gene regulation, and this is the kind of thing that Venus has looked at. And so the heart as a whole, which um, changes our genes are really the microbiology level, and that's something he's looked at in a great... And he's written about memory, which isn't about price. And in memory, something happens like, I see a car crash, okay, now that burns into your brain. What is happening there? It's something psychological, something which you see is altering the connections in your brain. That's top down from what is happening at, at the macro level, the society level, and into your connections in your brain. And the final one I'll just say, because we came into our brains, our interaction with teachers, friends, and so on. And this is an action from a social level to explain that. It's ridiculous. And, and perhaps I think a lot about his chess. If you're watching people playing chess, chess can move in certain ways, and they can't move in other ways. Now, something to do with the, the structure of the chess, or with the structure of the chess board. No, it's not that. What it is, it's a social agreement which has been uh, arrived hundreds of years. And that social agreement is not the same as any individual's patents. It's in chess books, it's in computer programs, it's in thousands, hundreds of thousands of chess players, right? It's not the same as any specific person's brain state. So the rules of chess are abstract, but they control what is allowable on a chess board, so that's another reason. Well, it's fascinating, and then something that those who are not chess players can apply to our lives is law or um, <laughs> ethics or, you know, that govern us and have, yeah. so in terms of things that imprint strongly upon us, I, I often feel, it's interesting that because I had listened to certain presentations you gave and read your writing, that when you're presenting to certain groups of scientists, you would have to make an argument about the the invisible factors that are the consciousness that play a huge role in our experience of the world. And of course, me coming from a background of being a painter and a writer, and most of my conversations and friends are in those other creative fields. And the invisible is very much a given as part of our material. Like we believe that what's unobservable and not you know, precisely measurable is often what gives spirit to a work of art or, or to a life. It's our unique voice. My argument is that um, there are some physicists who have kind of tried to book you down and saying, we are physicists, we deal with the only reality and you're not dealing with it. I'm defending you against. <laughs> yeah. They are dealing with the part of And it's perhaps useful to give my definition of fundamentalism. So my definition of fundamentalism is as follows. A fundamentalist is someone who takes something which is true, but it's a partial part of reality and claims that that partial part of reality describes all of reality. And of course, there are religious fundamentalists, but they're scientific fundamentalists, and they think everything can be described in terms of science, when it cannot. And science is very important to what it can do. I love science, I love understanding things about science, but for instance, science cannot tell you, which is something I've written about a lot, 
what is good and bad. There is no scientific experiment that can say a particular act was always bad. And for instance, what science can tell you at the moment is that global warming has taken place. It's leading to huge fires in California. What science cannot tell you is that fire in California good or bad. Science can tell you that fire will spread under certain conditions at length, but of the wind, minus, and that kind of stuff. But science has nothing to say about whether the spread of a fire is bad. That's a value judgment, and science cannot make value judgments. It's outside its science. Certainly, science cannot, despite what some people might tell you, science cannot tell you if something is beautiful or ugly. It's not a scientific category. Yeah, it may be able to analyze certain features and say it's more common that this results in a certain harmony. It can talk about harmony in the technical sense. I mean, of course, one of the things about art, if it's too regular, it's boring. Mm -hmm. If it's too irregular, it's boring. It has to be somewhere in the middle between being regular and totally messy. And, and that's why the work that you do is so important in terms of your work about cosmology. I guess now you're just finishing a paper about time, and yet you're a bridge for cosmology, physics, STEM is a mystery and, and they can't understand. But you acknowledge that, of course, there are great sections of society. In fact, I would say most of us who respond to phenomena on an emotional level. And so to speak outside of your discipline is, is hugely important. Well. I started off in general relativity, did my work with Stephen Hawking and others. Since I came back to South Africa, I've broadened out a huge amount and I've looked at things like housing policy, science policy, stuff like that. But I've also started looking, as you know, about complexity in the brain. And one of the things I've been looking at in the brain, in fact, I've got a PhD student working on it at the moment, is the way emotions affect the brain. And I've written a book about that, which talks about what is innate in the brain and what is not innate in the brain, one of those very, very old questions. And our brains are equipped with a set of primary emotional systems which guide us in what to do. And they're so important that they've been hardwired into the brain. And that's part of what happens. It works through neurotransmitters and the mechanisms are extremely fair, so we can understand the mechanisms. At the cognitive level, we can imagine things, and we don't understand imagination, we don't understand polio, we don't understand consciousness, but nevertheless, we can understand processes of cognition and how they create plans, as I've been saying, and those plans can result in things changing in the world. So the brain is one of my major interests at the moment, and it's the frontier of science for the present century, and it's a great subject to work in. Well, I think it's endlessly fascinating, and if I may say also, I think that people who are not studying the mind in terms from a, a scientific lens, but particularly writers have been studying the mind or consciousness for, for centuries, yeah, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But writers forever have been studying consciousness from the inside, yeah. and with huge perception, and recording it. So nowadays we can study it from the outside, the internal and the external view. We can even now, with these imaging processes, find out which parts of the brain are active at a particular time. Now, there's a huge amount of nonsense written about this, both of stating what it can done, but nevertheless, it's really very, very important. But none of that changes the fact that we have thoughts, those thoughts, we have feelings, we have qualia, we have feel pain and joy and all the rest of it. 
all of these are guided by values. The role that values plays in this is extremely important because values guide everything else that we do. And what the average person can't get into all the details of this. They can get into a possession of a big picture of how the brain works and the fact that the brain does have all of these things and they all interact with us. You've got your your cognition, you've got your values, you've got your primary emotions, your secondary emotions, and they're all interacting with each other in ways which we can, all of us can understand. You don't have to be a technician to understand those things. Yes, and I'm so fascinated in thinking, and some of the you know, they seem like very simple questions, but like, where do ideas come from? Or when you're working in a collective, how people just decide to move, yes. Well, where ideas come from is something I had no answer on that problem of creativity. And there's a couple of points. There's a huge amount of randomness in biology or in technical terms of plasticity. And the brain has a lot of random stuff taking place. You know, at the micro level, the flow of neurotransmitters across synapses got a lot of randomness and so on. Randomness, you might think, is a disaster because it means that everything we do is just random. It actually works the other way. Mm-hmm. And it also works this way in microbiology. If you have a lot of random stuff taking place, what you can do is you can, in effect, look at this randomness and select the bits that you want and reject the bits that you don't want. Now, this is what happens, for instance, with the adaptive immune system. And it happens in brains in the theory that Gerald Edelman called neurodynamism is that connections are formed at random in the brain, and then you strengthen the ones which are useful and you weaken the ones which aren't by a process involving neurotransmitters guided by emotions. And so randomness is there at the bottom all over the place in biology, but if you didn't have that randomness, you wouldn't be able to produce the results you want. And of course, the same is true in Darwinian evolution. If there wasn't randomness, in reproduction, then you couldn't improve things by selecting the better ones because there wouldn't be any better ones to select. So randomness plays a really important part in biology, but it, it does so by allowing you to select things for higher-level purposes. And, and selecting things for higher-level purposes is one of the classic kinds of dying action that takes place. Yes, I mean, I understand, as I said, from an artistic level, but yes, we have to be able to risk and take chances and the importance of spontaneity and improvisation. And I try to imagine what that would mean from from a scientific point of view, but one often feels, and I've conversations with artists from different disciplines where they will talk about a book writing itself or a song, you know, like uh, Bob Dylan, you know, saying that he doesn't write his own songs, they just come to him. Into one of the things I've written about my 80 years, I've had many things. One of is a view on the nature of morality. And mm-hmm. um, deep morality involves getting bigger mm-hmm. in order to be able to take part in something bigger. And artistic creativity is it's crucial to artistic creativity, amongst many other things. It's crucial to common life. But in artistic creativity, from my viewpoint, what happens is you start off with an idea and you're shaping it, and you're totally in control. And it doesn't matter if it's music or, or, or sculpture or painting or a novel or whatever. Eventually, the thing has got its own life. It's become itself. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the, the role of the artist is to stand back and let it become what it's got to become. 
And that is the way that you get truly great art. And so there's two types of art. There's art in which the artist is pointing at the things, pointing at the universe, saying, look at this, look at how beautiful it is. And there's art in which they're pointing at the selves and saying, look at me, look at me, look how clever I am. And that's the distinction between great and small art. This business of letting it take control is what's going to happen in science as well. Many, many science theory, and they love the theory, and they think it's the answer to everything. You've got to then let go of it, take a look at it refresh, test it, and see if it actually does what you think it would do. And it might do everything you want it to do, or there may be some problem hidden in the way, and it doesn't. And from the viewpoint of scientific creativity and the process, You've got to be imaginative to work out how things might be. You've then got to work as it, putting in the sweat to develop it, but you've then got to stand back critical and see, does it cover all cases? No, in fact, is there any fault with it? Because if there is any fault with it, you can assure as anything, someone else will find the fault if you don't find it. Right. And it's interesting, so what you're describing also is this kind of openness as well, that even in a field like the sciences, where you're testing everything, but you have to remain open and curious. And I was wondering, in terms of you spoke about, you know, you collaborate, say, with students and then teachers who have been important to you. Do you ever get ideas from conversations with young people or children in terms of their perspective offering you a new angle? Let me tell you, say one thing. We had a little eight-year celebration conference, and I said that oh, yeah. as a researcher, you have PhD students. They start off from you, if after a year and a half, they are not teaching you things that you don't know, then you're a failure as a PhD supervisor. They should be up there learning stuff, teaching stuff, developing stuff, and so your students should be teaching you stuff. I'm speaking now at the university level. In terms of little children and so on, I think there's a lot to learn from the freshness. My wife works in child development, child education, and she loves seeing the way that children see things and so on. I doubt that we learn much from them about science. Yes. <laughs> we can learn from them questions to ask. We can see from them the ways to look at the world. And we must be careful about science. And there is a huge number of amateur scientists out there, and it's one of the problems with science communication. A really good science communicator can get across to people out in the general public ideas about how science works, how particle physics works, cosmology, and so The trouble is most of them follow Stephen Hawking's admonition and don't have any equations in the book. And that gives you, maybe, that gives you a false impression, and so then people like myself get a lot of... <laughs> emails coming in, this is my theory of the physics of science, but people who have no scientific training, and science is such a complex thing, you cannot do it that way. You have to have a solid background in mathematics, you have to know classical physics, you have to know quantum physics, you have to be solidly grounded before you can make progress in science. Yes, I was speaking broadly, I think in terms of learning from children, maybe that would be more on the level of like consciousness and perception, they are things where they're yeah. still, they're not fixed, so that's interesting. Because you're talking about perhaps ways the general public might be more educated about science. I have to admit that I come from, as I said, I don't have a strong base in that. But how we might improve our education models, and you've seen it from the highest level. Well, what I advocate for public 
at, at university level, I think all students who come through university should have to do one course in science where they actually spend time in a laboratory and do some simple experiments. That's because there's a lot of people in the social sciences who basically think scientists are just the experience of doing an experiment and basically nature tells you this is the way it is and it doesn't matter what theories you have. If you roll a ball down a plane Galileo's experiment, it's going to accelerate in a quadratic way. You can test it, you can time it, you can prove this is the way it's worked. And it doesn't matter what you think it ought to do, it will do what it will do. And I think it's really important for the public at large, as many people as possible actually do scientific experiments so that they get that feeling by scientists that this is in fact the way things are. But for the fact the general public can do that. I mean, one of the things they can do, for instance, is if, if they're a little bit athletic, they can get themselves a telescope and they can look at the sky and they can see astronomers making up those pictures. All of that stuff is actually up there. Uh, and so I think it's very important that scientists convey to the public because they aren't just inventing stuff. So that's an important kind of thing. Now, there is a problem in the way quite a lot of public science is being public at the moment through various of the popular journals, the journals have to sell themselves. And so they go in to a degree with dealers kind of stuff, you know, the whole this kind of sort of stuff. Someone has just proved that there are multiple universes and a whole lot of stuff like this. And they are misrepresenting things in two kinds of ways. Firstly, they are taking stuff which actually in scientific terms is fringe stuff one or two people, they will say, a scientist say, they mean one fringe scientist who isn't believed by most scientists said something. And this is happening. Another thing that is happening is that the part of science which is getting communicated very loudly to the public is to do mainly with astronomy, black holes, to some degree particles, to the exact kind of stuff. The absolutely fascinating stuff about complexity, emergence, and so on, which is the area that I'm working a lot, is getting communicated to the public at large. But I have a draft of the book which we try to do something about this. There are one or two honorable exceptions. There's a wonderful book called Stuff Matters, which is about how everyday materials around you, paper, metal, cloths, and so on, how they arise from that physics affect everyday life. And that is part of what should be much more widely available to the general public. Uh, and so they get a lot of the astronomy, cosmology, and to some extent particle physics stuff, but they should be getting much more of this kind of science and reality stuff, the science that underlies what happens when you boil a cup of tea, stuff like that. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in for this podcast for the creative process. I'm Horace Moe, an undergraduate environmental student at the University of Michigan, as well as the environmental sustainability podcaster here at the creative process. I agree with Alice when he encouraged as many students as possible to get involved with the scientific experiment, because I benefited a lot from conducting a thermodynamics experiment with my instructor. Initially, I was a bit afraid of conducting experiments in college because scientific experiments could be convoluted and time-consuming. But as my instructor guides me through the process, conducting experiments pick my interest 
as I was able to use my collected data to test my hypothesis and gradually modify experiments based on various results. Like Alice said that science is not just about innovation. Even though experiments require dedication and hard work, I realized that experiments not limited to the scientific ones could train the critical and analytical thinking of participants. All these skills could be essential for people's future work, especially as professionals. Being the co-host for this interview with Alice, I was grateful to hear his experience with scientific research, and I believe that his contribution to our society would motivate the next generation to follow his footsteps and keep making change around the world. So, Alice, I thank you for sharing your stories with our podcast listeners. Oh yeah, I think that's hugely exciting, particularly not just for young people, but for attracting young people, but giving them at an early age and to understand that it's a language and it's something that they get excited about and observe in their daily life, which you've done so well. And so I was wondering, yeah, it's true. I look forward to more works that make it accessible, but aren't just emphasizing the dramatic or fringe elements of science. But I understand the temptation because it's dramatic and it's science fiction. And if you want to postulate what lies beyond the horizon, it's exciting to think about that, the unknown. And from your own background and your family, your father was a newspaper editor. So that gave you a perspective of how your ideas could be communicated to the general public? No, well, she was a very good editor. He had really solid values. He was one of the newspaper editors who stood up against the national government when they yes. produced your policy, so he was liberal and that. He had an absolutely strict thing that you separate the news reporting and news reporting should be verifiable stuff you can go out and find for yourself from opinion. And the opinion papers went from the leader page to the leader, but you did not get political propaganda on the front page of attending to the news. Now, that is what is happening across the world. England's happening in the door, particularly I'm familiar with the England situation, where people like the Daily Telegraph puts a price, but is in fact party political propaganda and tries to present it as news, and it's presented in a tendentious, emotional kind of way and so on. And there's been a huge drop in the standards of newspapers since the time that my dad was a newspaper editor to what's happening at the present time. Yes, and I think it's so unfortunate. I mean, we need, and I mean, not even to go into it, but with some political leaders actually saying that the press is the enemy. If you don't have a reliable press, I mean, what do you have? I feel so much for journalists, even though I'm sort of involved in a, maybe a branch of journalism, but it's kind of arts as well, that there's not a, more places for long-form journalism. I think that people are really curious in that way, but it's just unfortunate, this clickbait society. Yeah, this is now leading to huge problems through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all of these, because these act as huge washing machines that can be used for propaganda, as we know. And it's very, very important, this fight back that's been taking place, trying to prevent these kinds of social media, which are so enormously powerful nowadays, from being used for propaganda purposes in a profit way. So I think that's critically important in society today. And there's some things developed, some other participants in the project, so, so Paul Mutter, maybe you know him, and he has a public editor project where the public can report on and give rankings for the verifiability of a, a news item. And it seems so sad that it used to be something that we could more or less, you know, take for granted, as you say, that it was fact-checked. 
I think it would be very useful. Students of journalism used to do this. They used to take newspaper articles and rank, give them scores for the number of emotional words, the number of factual words, and that kind of sort of stuff. And I think there should be somehow other classes for the public at large to, you know, using the word traitor and so on as a kind of emotional kind of to shift things. There, there's a huge need for the public to be educated in the, the tricks that the propaganda people use, and they're very well known. So that, that's probably another book which needs to be written, but you really need it to get out on the social media because that's readership. Yes, and I think you people do know, but they get numb as well because of the prevalence, and it's not just the text that's used, it's the visual presentation, and you mentioned algorithms and algorithms can be used for the good and for creating things, but can be used against us. So I feel lucky that I'm of a generation before yours, but I still was born before social media was the norm. So my brain rejects a lot of those things, but I do feel for young people who that's the only experience that they have of the world. Well, I think there needs to be a very serious international move to police social media and quite how that will happen. I'm not sure it's happening to a small degree, like the U.S. Congress has tried to bring Zuckerberg into line, but of course Congress is such a corrupt institution that that's tough much good. And part of the problem, of course, is that these people can multiple continents. And so they can be brought in. China controls it very strictly. And if a government wants to, it can control the social media. And there's a very delicate line there, the rampant capitalism on the one side and the total socialist control on the other side. There's somewhere in between there's a spot where one should be. There's this problem of the, the social media having this huge power and being uncontrolled on the one side in capitalist countries and being totally controlled in socialist countries like China. And there must be a place in between where they are held to account, still allowed to be free as far as possible without being these hugely damaging institutions. Yes, and I mean, we both benefit from the enormous research possibilities that are, you know, the connectivity, which is so interesting as well, that's made possible by technology. But there's another aspect, too, where you have misinformation or sometimes too much information, which can hamper your ability to create things. Where the search engines come in, because there is too much information, you go to the search engine and you look at what it offers you, and it's chosen what it offers you on the basis of an algorithm. That's where really important stuff is taking place. Yes. And so in terms of every aspect, I know that there's different search engines that aren't Google or I think there's DuckDuckGo. You may have recommendations for those that are more reliable or offer more directed searches that would be interesting for students? No, look, I use Google. It's, it's so good one can't really avoid it. But yeah. it should be possible to do two things. One thing would be to be able to tweak the Google preferences for yourself. So it's not just in the hands of an algorithm you get to choose. That ought to be possible. Now, the other thing which I've thought about quite a bit, it ought to be possible to set up a rating system for web pages or for that matter for other communications which ranks them as being true, false or not. So, for instance, there's this thing called Snopes where you can put something comes on and you put it to Snopes and is it true or is it not true? Did someone say that or not? And 
of course you have to then trust folks that it's telling you the truth or not so you end up with the readers and then nevertheless i think some kind of system of quality of web pages and even posts in some sense would be incredibly useful sort of some kind of gold brown thing saying this web page is telling you the truth now of course wikipedia is a very very interesting example in which they have tried to police it and make sure that it is of reasonable quality. It's really quite a success. You have to be very careful of the political pages, but for instance, in science, it's by and large very good. In many areas, it's really quite good. I think that's an example which we should think of as really quite a big success story. Oh yeah, no, it's really lovely to see that when, you know, some platforms are being abused of their bad characters, but the public good, in general, I do agree on the Wikipedia and its pursuit of knowledge and collaborative. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Of course, there's some mistakes, yes, that do filter their way in there, but it's a very inspiring collaborative project. I don't even know how many people are involved in that, but it's wonderful to see that something constantly evolving like that. And then one thing I'd like to discuss more is your own faith and contrast it to everything that's out there you know on the internet it can be how does one maintain innocence and curiosity even through maturity and acquiring knowledge I mean these are some questions that you've asked yourself over time yeah maybe another time would be good for that <laughs> oh, is it too big of a question no I didn't mean to, to ask about it but I think it is interesting which comes in all things one must read one must read very widely. I have a wonderful library, a very, very wide li library from physics through to sociology, neuroscience. You, you must read very widely. There's so much stuff out there. And so I have a policy of trying to locate what I would call the golden books, the books and articles which I think have got things right. There's a whole lot of people out there things wrong in so many different ways. There's a whole golden thread of people who get stuff right. Um, just a random name would be Peter Berger in sociology. He's now died. But he wrote what I regard still as one of the best series of books ever in sociology. And there's a, a professor of philosophy in Toronto who's written a book called The Mind So Rare. Absolutely wonderful book. Putting a very broad view of how he's called Merlin Donald. And it, it's called The Mind So Rare. And so I collect these books, which I think are great, and sort of refer to them, read them time and again. So I think that's something one can try and do and sort of ask yourself. So I also have a list of authors of who I think have always get it wrong. I'm not going to oh. tell you who they are because I'd get into trouble if I did. Oh, I have a list of authors who I, I know can be relied on to get things wrong. Oh, Is it because they're so certain or...? I mean, we're speaking, I can't speak, I don't know who you're uh, talking about. Because they're ideology-driven, and the fundamentalist has an idea. I'm not sure if I really completed that. The fundamentalist has an idea, which is a very good idea, witness, I mean, of application, it's wonderful. And they then try to say it's the only thing that works, that everything can be understood in terms of that idea. And the universe isn't like this. There are many different ideas which apply in different domains. And so... People I'm thinking of, they've got a very, very simplistic view of something either of evolution or the brain or physics or something, and they then try to say everything can be understood by this one simple idea. There's nothing else which you need to take into account. 
and they mislead a lot of people because people like simple messages. People like to be told everything is so simple, and so they persuade quite a lot of people to follow them, even though what they're saying is absolutely fundamentally wrong. Yes, and so I was wondering, I mean, your interest is vast and your important contributions to those fields. I would like to just go more into your background of your work in South Africa, which, you know, take on the philosophical, political dimension. But we didn't discuss what drew you in the first place to cosmonology. I'm no longer doing detail. I used to do detailed calculations and so on. I'm no longer doing that. And I'm now writing quite a lot about the philosophy of the big picture. And this is in terms of, particularly I've spent a lot of time thinking about what can be proved and what cannot be proved in cosmology. That's been something I've been looking at since about 1975 or so. I'm very stern, if you like, about making testable claims and say that it's scientific very interested in the relation of cosmology to complexity, how and why does complexity arise, and this leads into this whole thing of fundamental physics of various kinds who say that everything in the universe is based on the laws of physics, and therefore there is no meaning in the cosmos. Now, this is obviously false. There is meaning in the cosmos. You and I deal with meaning every day. They do also in their everyday life. They just choose to live a split mental life. Mental life, they look at the equations of physics and say there's no meaning in the equation of physics. Half of the life, there's a lot of meaning in things, in fricated lives, because they're not trying to there's a bigger picture where they feel it, and I think that's very important. And I think in the bigger picture, and that's where you enter into the boundaries of cosmology and you start doing metaphysics. Yeah, of course. I find it very strange when people say that there's no meaning. I suppose they mean that in a very particular way, but even in their own life and their pursuit of knowledge and laws of physics or whatever their field is, it's a pursuit of meaning. And then Donald writes this wonderful book about things extra special about human beings as opposed to a rock or a piece of machinery. If you really believe that, you're going to start treating people that way because it will affect how you view people, and that's really, really dangerous. And so these things are so often philosophical. They end up affecting how we behave in our lives. And so this is where philosophy and values are really important. They change how we act in the world. Yes, and I also thought it was interesting in terms of your background. You're not just trying to discover laws, but you're also, you know, I understand you maybe you don't do it now. You were in rowing. You were very physically engaged. In when I went up to Cambridge, I had been a very sheltered life. I did a lot of stuff I enjoyed, like rowing, climbing, flying, sailing, all that kind of stuff. When I came back to South Africa, I got involved in politics. I got involved in projects trying to help the poor in various kind of ways. I ended up nations involved with political and I ran a lot of organizations. And that, I think that this kind of interaction gave me a, a real groundedness. The total life history is actually really quite restricted. And I think having I mean, quite a lot of those people have in fact gone out and done things across the world. But it's possible to lead your entire life history as an academic with no real interaction with, with what is out there. And I think that this has been very important in my life. It's, I've run a lot of organizations that are engaged with various kinds of political and social interactions, running charities of various kinds and so on. And I think this gives one a grounding in reality. 
Yes, it's so essential as well as people, because, you know, there's the wonder of the universe, but then we have how those laws are applied on this planet and in our daily interactions. And as someone said to me, it enriches your own discipline, because often if the problems you might be struggling with in your own discipline have been worked out in other fields. For instance, I have conversations with dancers and, and dance troops, and one is a very lovely contemporary dance troupe called Polobolus. Well, what dancers know about swarm thinking, for instance, they did a collaboration with the MIT Robotics Lab. But what a dancer, a choreographer will know about working in a group without even seeming to communicate with one another is, is innate, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so it's so fascinating. It uh, comes to be instinctual when you practice it enough. Yeah, exactly. But they really know it from the inside, and as you were saying, novelists or poets. Yeah, so one must distinguish instinct. Well, it comes automatic, so you can just do it. So you've shared so many really interesting insights, and so I just have one last question for you know, the educational initiative, because we spoke about educational models, but I think about the future, our current educational models and systems, and what are your thoughts on the kind of world yeah. we're leaving our children? I think it's a total disaster, and in fact, you're in Paris. Something is happening in Paris which is going to be a disaster. I better not give a name. There's a guy who is persuading the French educational system to move to a faith educational system. Phonics spaces put them up, you teach kids and then you teach them to put them together two at a time, three at a time. You only tell them two or three years later, by the way, this has got some meaning, it's got to do with the real world. My wife is very busy on the opposite thing. She gets people interested in stories first yes. and she gets them to read stories and to get used to the idea that a book is telling them interesting things, interesting stuff. And they then start focusing down on the sentences, the phrases, the words and the letters. So there's a bottom-up and a top-down approach to this. Yeah. And they have to learn the letters and the pronunciations. But they need first to understand that a book writing is telling them, it's communicating with them, it's letting someone else tell them things, it's telling them interesting things. And education should be based that way around. It should be getting kids to think for themselves, to explore for themselves. They shouldn't be sitting in rows and raising their hands when the teacher says raise their hand. They should be crawling around, exploring, experimenting with water and sand and bricks and things, finding out things for themselves. Exactly. And the excitement of that, and these are unknown territories. And you say there's children are natural storytellers anyway, so you can teach so much through stories. I really believe in that. So what they do in the project by life is involve kids who, who are too young to write down for themselves. There's an adult there, and she says, tell me your story, and the child tells it, and the adult writes it down, and then reads it back to the child and, and points out to the child where the words are that are conveying their story. And that's when you get them absolutely fascinated by writing and wanting to write. With the phonics-based system, you get kids who hate going to school. They don't want to go to school because it's so goddamn boring. But any interested child gets freaked out of their mind by having to sit there doing this mindless stuff. Yeah, well, I think especially now, as you say, when you were growing up, they weren't so accessible and computers weren't a huge part when I was very young. And since we have computers now to replace a lot of that rote knowledge, force students down that road, it's about the imagination where they can really contribute the most too, isn't it? 
talk. So thank you so much, George Ellis, for your contribution across disciplines and for sharing your philosophical, spiritual framework that helps make sense and provide meaning to this endless quest of yours that you have shared with us. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Horace Mel. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trail. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.